Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest is a neuropsychiatrist, psychoanalyst, and a clinical neuroscientist, Dr. Michael Militich. Welcome back to the show. Thank you, Lucas. What a pleasure to be back. Awesome. Michael, maybe do you want to let my listeners know a little bit about your journey? If they didn't happen to listen to the first podcast that we did together maybe did you want to maybe mention a bit how you got into what you do today yeah of course it's kind of a long and winding journey if you remember and I guess what I would start as you know we talked ended up talking a lot about trauma in the early parts and and uh, like a lot of us that go into the healing professions, I had a lot of you know childhood trauma that I grew up with including a really chronically ill mother and what I've since discovered to be a pretty uh, toxic and pathological family system. So from there, I really developed a drive to uh, succeed and excel in different things, in particular in medicine, and then medicine as a career, but at the same time was very involved in sports, became involved in Olympic weightlifting at about age 14 or 15, picked that up and continued that throughout school, undergrad, med school, et cetera. 
and really tried to take everything that I was learning in med school and sort of do cheat codes with it, with my training, because my training, honestly, athletically was first and foremost at the time in terms of priorities. So I was my own subject and my own object of my, uh, uh, of my interest. So Anyway, they've spread from there, obviously, into helping other teammates and ultimately getting an Olympic team berth in 1984. But uh, being able to look at people that are sort of competing at the highest possible level and looking to see the combination of brain and body and how critical that was. It was something that really wasn't being paid attention to at the time, as you know, and how things in our bodies influence our brains and vice versa. And so from there, I ended up doing a, um, a little bit of uh, small town family practice after the Olympic Games in which we did just about everything. But what I realized at the time was there were just about everybody coming in with some kind of physical ailment had some sort of stress that almost everything that I was seeing was stress related Uh, and that could be whether it's infectious or whether it can be a personal family problem or what have you but stress was associated with it and that had been something that I'd been reading about and, and really interested in in looking at a systems approach to to people so Went from there into, I thought, hey, I got to learn about, that propelled me into psychiatry and doing, first of all, neurophysiological, biological psychiatry, which I did and uh, in uh, Michigan. I crossed over from Canada, finished that up, and then at the same time realized that, okay, hey, I knew a lot about um, the biology and biological psychiatry, but I didn't know much about patients and how to talk to patients and really getting to know patients, which was a tremendous interest of mine because the DSM, I think, has really failed people on so many, so many levels. And this model of going to a psychiatrist and getting a simple prescription and a 10-minute visit does not do people any service at all. So I wanted the, the best way to really understand was to do the deepest dive possible, as was my kind of uh, MO to that point. So I did psychoanalytic training and child training as well and continued to work with high-level athletes and performance type of work. So I, I kind of had a different approach to the mind and the brain and to mental health in general. I look at it as almost like an athletic model, Lucas, where, okay, you have, everyone has something going on with their mental health. Let's look at how we can build on your strengths together, realizing that there are blocks to how well you can feel, how well you perform, etc. Yeah, okay, there are some genetic kinds of predispositions to things, but we can also, there's a lot of epigenetic factors that we can control. And the more I was working with that, the more interested I got in sort of the functional integrative medicine. So realizing that that needed to be uh, dove into deeply, I, I entered program, got board certified in, um, in functional and integrative medicine, metabolic medicine, and then became an advanced fellow there. So now I do a top-down, sort of bottom-up, inside-out, outside-in approach to patients. There's, uh, I, I try to amalgamate or integrate all of that whenever I see someone. Mm-hmm. So that's the uh, sort of the, the short version, I guess, of 
how I ended up getting here. Yeah, it's it's incredible to yeah from from the outside just hearing about all these different paths you went down and sort of merging things all together and and um, tapping into these various modalities, which is something that I highly respect of you. And obviously today's discussion, we really wanted to dive deep into ketamine assisted psychotherapy. So maybe did you want to let my listeners know how ketamine has slowly made its way through into its use in, in medicine today? Yeah, well, that's, it's a really interesting story because initially people were looking at sort of novel ways to improve depression and they sort of stumbled upon PCP as a molecule. And PCP was began to be used here in Detroit, actually, at Lafayette Clinic, which was one of the top research centers in the world at the time in the 1950s. But then they realized, obviously, the negative effects that PCP had and the side effects, even though it was a mood booster, and it did help some people with uh, treatment-resistant depression. So from there, someone else at Wayne State University, which is also in downtown Detroit, a general chemist, took the PCP molecule and actually made a ketamine molecule from it and began to look at how ketamine was able to be used in certain patients to help with depression. So you've got, on the one side, that's happening. On the other side, we knew that it was medically back before all of this happened. It was very useful as an anesthetic agent and particularly came into prominence in the Vietnam War, where it was used for a very quick-acting, sudden-on, quick-off phenomenon for anesthesia, for pain relief, for battlefield kinds of things. So you've got these sort of two tracks going on in in terms of how it was used. And it, it really wasn't until, I believe, 2000 was the very first time that an actual clinical study had been undertaken then. So I'm jumping ahead, obviously, a couple of decades here. But 2000 was the very first clinical study in which it was looked at in isolation, just ketamine by itself, and does ketamine improve depression? And that study had only, I think there were a limited number of subjects, only about nine subjects, but it was a, it, it turned out to be pretty positive in terms of its causing an improvement in mood in patients that had not done well on other medications. And it also had fewer side effects during the time that it was being administered than some of the SSRIs. So the advantages that people began to see were that, hey, this can happen immediately because the effects of the antidepressant is very quick when you see it in practice. An SSRI, you have to wait three to six weeks for an antidepressant effect to occur. It didn't have the numbing effect that an SSRI does. It doesn't have the withdrawal effect. So people began to look at this as really a very novel agent. And it's really, it's really only been in the last 10 years, though, that it's become much more mainstream now as the sort of interest in psychedelic medicine with MDMA being in the phase three trial at Hopkins with the psilocybin trials and how deeply important those are going to become for the treatment of trauma and the treatment of depression, ketamine is sort of the, the forerunner of all of that. Mm. And 
being able to look to see and understand, okay, what is ketamine doing? What are the effects on the brain? What's causing what is really becoming a burgeoning sort of area of interest in medicine now. Mm. Yeah, I guess the the key point here is the uniqueness in terms of its uh, mechanism of action. As far as I can tell, and with my little research, is that it can have a very rapid onset, you know, very fast acting antidepressant effect. And what they, I guess, believe maybe, you know, how this is mediated is potentially through the, the glutamate system, which is the network that many of the antidepressants, the SSRIs, don't tend to target directly per se. So in terms of how they're actually using it today, I know that there are various forms of uh, administration. So do you want to maybe elaborate maybe how different forms are being used today? Yeah, so ketamine really breaks down into two enantiomers, which are mirror image molecules, an S-ketamine and an R-ketamine. S-ketamine goes under the brand name Spravato, and that's a nasal inhalant. So that can be actually mailed to a patient. The patient can, can take it as an inhalation agent and so forth. But that was really developed because ketamine itself is is off patent. So there were some people, one in particular, who's actually now the director of, he's actually an extremely well thought of researcher in psychiatry named John Crystal, who's the head of the department at Yale. He formed a group that developed this bravado so that it could be back on patent and is being used. The S-ketamine has some some potential as an antidepressant, but it probably is very short-acting and it should be used under the auspices of of medical supervision. And in my opinion, as a physician and as a psychiatrist, I don't think these things should be used at home. You know, that don't try this at home because you can have side effects from them. So that's one of them. The other forms of it are a sublingual or an oral form that's absorbed probably about 10 to 20 percent nasal probably about 20 to 30 percent then you've got an intramuscular and im injection which is in the 90 percent and we use here at the clinic an iv preparation which is obviously 100 percent absorbed so those are the four main delivery systems for it most of the use commercially you'll see are through clinics that don't involve psychotherapy with it. They're just sort of standalone treatments by themselves. I don't know that there's a lot of research and a lot of good science behind using them by themselves without therapy in terms of long acting, long lasting value. Although obviously it's going to make you feel better at the time and we can go into all the receptors and so forth as to why that is. But I think a lot of the people online in a lot of the clinics that are just sort of using it and saying this is the golden key they are, are not really being accurate with the public. Well, let's, let's definitely expand upon that, Michael, because obviously something that you emphasize quite a lot is working with a practitioner or someone that can be there with you to help transform your state of mind. So maybe did you want to elaborate on, I guess, how that would look, the ideal scenario 
when combining the ketamine therapy with a practitioner? What does that look like? Yeah, if you're okay, I'd be happy to sort of describe what we have at our clinic and what we've set up here. It's uh, somewhat based on the Johns Hopkins model and with psilocybin and MDMA that they're using. And so what we will do is we'll do a, a full psychiatric evaluation on a patient initially. Most, if not all, of our patients fall under people are coming because they want to feel better. Well, what are they wanting to feel better from? They're in pain. The nature of their pain is usually depression. And most patients have come because they've had a lot of different trials of sort of traditional antidepressants, traditional therapy, and just haven't worked. Also, many of our patients are trauma-based patients. So I tend to see a lot of mental health issues through a trauma lens, actually, Lucas, that I, I really believe that trauma and early childhood trauma, and we can measure this now with things like ACE scores, adverse childhood experience scores, and things like that, they really shape the early infant and childhood brain. So they change synapses, they change the way that neural networks are formed and so forth. And and much of what we see in both in adaptive health as well as sort of maladaptive uh, kinds of things. And when, when I say maladaptive, I mean uh, becoming depressed, becoming uh, wanting to escape through alcohol or drugs, developing psychiatric symptoms like obsessions or compulsions. So many of these actually are branches and leaves that you see, but the real root is, is in trauma. So one of, the, one of the great benefits to, I believe, psychedelics in general, but also to what I'm finding with ketamine is being able to to address that. So your question, back to your question about how, you need somebody that someone can form a relationship with. So we do a, an extensive interview that is really coming from a place where, hey, there somebody's had some broken or damaged attachments early on. They have to develop a sense of trust with this therapist or therapist-to-be. They have to feel safe. They have to feel comfortable. They have to start to feel the things that they didn't receive before because they're going to go into a place where they're going to be finding some things out that are painful. We repress and suppress everything because they're painful, because we don't want to face them or because we're ashamed of facing them. We don't want to know them. So if we're going to go on a journey, a psychedelic journey, we need to know we got a good partner with us that we can trust. Mm -hmm. So that kind of, even before we start the ketamine, I think that relationship becomes super important. Mm -hmm. After we've established that, Obviously, we talk to them as much as possible about what their experience may be like, although everybody's experience is completely different. And then just as a uh, sort of an overview, then we'll start, we'll hook up an IV for a patient. So one of the uh, side effects is nausea. So we might give an anti-nausea drug if they're predisposed to it. But we start at a fairly low dose for people. And dosing is very complicated, very tricky, we found. It doesn't go according to the old milligrams per kilogram for anesthesia because everybody's brain is so much more complicated than that. We have to really look to try to see the personality characteristics, the defensive style, that adaptive style I talked about, 
the degree of dissociation that someone has or the degree of connection to their own emotions that they have. We look at a combination of different things to determine the dose. My nurse practitioner then administers the IV, takes about 45 minutes. The patient goes through different stages of the ketamine induction. And then afterwards, important point, my nurse practitioner always starts off by asking the patient to have one single intention in going into the ketamine experience. So what do you want to discover about yourself, learn about yourself in this experience? So that sort of focuses their brain and their mind on an experience. And usually it's something like, why am I so depressed? Why do I have difficulty with relationships? What's holding me back at work from doing a better job? So they go in with that in mind. Then their experience, very interestingly, will often begin to give answers and open doors to rooms that had previously been closed. Mm. So they'll have a lot of thoughts, fantasies, associations, visions, etc. under the experience. The nurse practitioner collects those, talks to the patient, settles the patient down, someone drives the patient home. And then the next day they return and I do the sort of integration piece of it, which is, okay, we know your history. We know what you experienced. Let's hear all about it. Let's see. I treat it kind of like a waking dream, if you will. So let's see what your brain was telling you about what your intention was and how that fits with the narrative of your life. Mm. So that's, those are the pragmatics of the experience. Hmm. Just as far as the actual procedure and the actual induction phase, I'd love to, you mentioned there are various assessments to determine the dosage and you said degrees of disassociation, personality changes. I would love to hear about like, how do you determine degree of dissociation and how how are you assessing their personality during that experience? Yeah, well, that's all done beforehand. So that's something So far, all of the patients that we've put through my clinic here have been my patients previously, so I know them pretty well already. But how do we determine that is a really kind of a critical thing because patients that don't have access to their emotions have are often, there's a line you can draw back. Oftentimes, this goes back into trauma and childhood Because there's a developmental line that people have, that children have, and we should be teaching this to kids, not to to patients in a psychiatric clinic, but how to identify your emotions, how to be able to self-regulate your emotions, how to label your emotions, how to use your emotions as information and data, not as something that makes you feel weak and vulnerable and ashamed, but how to use these and then a developmental line as we get older and more sophisticated. What I have found or what we have found in the clinic is that people that have had a lot of neglect, parents that are drug addicts, parents that have been absent, parents that didn't ever want their kids, parents that have abandoned or ignored their kids emotionally or physically, can these kids shut down very early on? 
So oftentimes a presentation will be symptomatic. It'll be depression for the most part. But one of the things that I do is I try to, whenever I'm working with somebody, I try to stay in the moment with somebody. So if somebody starts talking about depression, for example, I woke up this morning and I really felt depressed. Just an example. Something you hear all the time, right? I mean, so you, you say, what I will do is say, oh, I'll stop them and I'll say, okay, can you push into that a little bit more? Can you tell me what, what depressed felt like? Well, I just didn't feel like getting out of bed. I just felt like I couldn't move. What's the point in getting up today? I said, well, I will say something like, well, where, where do you feel that? And what are you thinking as you're feeling that? So again, I'm trying to get them to connect into a physical experience. Can you tell me what you're feeling in your body? But also, what are your thoughts? So there's, there, there's a really critical question about self-awareness. So I'm testing a function of mm -hmm. self-awareness. For people that are dissociated, Lucas, they can't answer those questions. Right. They can't answer questions about self-awareness. They can't answer questions about what do I do? They don't have capacities to manage strategically. They don't have the tools in the toolbox when they get kind of overwhelmed with some emotion. They just go into the emotion and stay in the emotion. So that's the second thing. They don't have a way to modulate their emotions. And then they just try to blank out and push it away. So that's a second major criteria. There's also a sort of a, a typical physical, I call it physical because it's in, it's in body posture, it's in tone, it's in voice prosody, the inflection of their voice tones and so on. If they're more flat, if people are more flat and you can't feel a connection, you know you're talking to a person that is dissociated. So I, I, I could go on and list three or four others, but I have this list of criteria in which I test for their degree of relatedness to their emotions. The more dissociated they are, this is, this is something I did not predict ahead of time. The more dissociated they are, the higher the dose they require. What that is completely different to um, all other drugs. Wait, so the more dissociated they are, the, the higher the dose they need. Correct. So you'll, you'll increase the dose if they. We will increase the dose. And that surprised us as much as anything because we had three people, severe trauma, all similar histories that I just described to you. There were non responders to medication that was just as high a dose, if not higher than other people that had had hallucinatory experiences. So we were, you know, scratching our heads. Why is this happening? And what we came up with was, was this correlation that the more dissociation, the higher the dose. So, you know, this is where it really gets fascinating because what are the neural pathways that have formed as a result of particular kinds of trauma that lead to dissociation? What are the neurotransmitters that are different in those folks than in people that are more connected? So people that, for example, would come in with, I'm just thinking about another patient that had come in with 
a lot of relationship difficulties. She was a person that was sort of always kind of out there, out there with her emotions and didn't have much of a filter and was always really kind of talking without thinking, extraordinarily kind hearted, but would get herself into trouble by saying too much. So people had the complaint that she was, you know, too much. And this was interfering with her business, interfering with some of her relationships, etc. That person got by on a much, much lower dose and had a much stronger experience from um, almost a, a visual hallucinatory thing. She went into it very quickly and right away and was comfortable in it. Wow. So that whole aspect there, Michael, just really surprises me in terms of the, um, the dosage escalation. And, and when you mentioned, you know, we're not truly sure about the um, underlying neurotransmitters that determines this degree of variability. Um, right. All, all these patients had a washout period there, right? Like they all, they all abstained from everything, like everything. Hmm. Yes. Good point. We have them abstain from as much of the psychotropic medications as we can you know, sometimes people that are severely depressed, they can't just stop. Uh, they yeah. can't just stop their SSRI, for example, go into withdrawal or uh, something such as that. But we're we're very specific, like no caffeine, fasting in the morning, good night's sleep, going to bed early. I mean, get as clean as they possibly can ahead of time. Regardless of, because um, I also wonder whether they, some of those patients, had they ever historically used ketamine like recreationally like never it's, it's not even like they've had previous exposure there never i no i haven't had a patient that's used any psychedelics to date wow. and i've i've chosen that specifically because what i'm really doing is building a big database of experience here too mm. Mm. this has not been something this kind of ketamine assisted psychotherapy to my knowledge, has not been tried on a private practice basis in a clinic before. Mm. So that whole process there, so they, first of all, they set the intention, they undergo induction through IV, and then you said they'll then sleep on it. Let's say they sleep on their experience. And then the following days when you, that's when all the integration takes place like that. Correct. Well, actually, it begins after. Here's what we try to emphasize with people. Most of them are pretty drowsy when you come out of it, like any anesthetic. So that which is why we have somebody take them home. We like to encourage them to keep a diary. Just come up with any thoughts, write down any thoughts, ideas, memories you may have. Take it easy during the rest of the day. So what we're really encouraging them to do is sort of a, a quasi-meditative kind of thing, Lucas, where they can begin to, because it, in my opinion, and you know, maybe we're jumping ahead here, but in my opinion, I really think that we're influencing BDNF and synaptogenesis here. Mm-hmm. And we're also reducing inflammation. So that's why I think this particular form is going to be more robust. So I think that when, so, when a patient leaves, we ask them, hey, 
it's too cold here now. I mean, we're in uh, North America and it's going to be, uh, it's, I think we're at about 15 degrees Fahrenheit today. Wow. And yeah. Uh, so we asked them to go for a walk. We asked them to go to spend some time in nature. We asked them to take an ability to, to diary what their thoughts and ideas are. So they begin to, there's more that emerges over the course of that day. Oftentimes the patient will also dream that night. Yeah. So there's kind of a continuation that they're doing in their own heads. And then they come in and have the integration session the next day. Right. Makes sense. As part of the, um, as part of the mechanism of action, I know you mentioned briefly influencing, you know, synaptogenesis, things that come to my mind, just again, of my little research is that ketamine primarily targets the AMPA, AMPA glutamate system or glutamate um, network. And then also, the one thing that I wonder is whether it shares similar mechanisms to, let's say, LSD and psilocybin, where they where they are now both known to influence the default mode network. I wonder whether ketamine has that sort of disruptive effect on the default mode network at all. Do we do we have any data on that? There's nothing published in the literature on that, but your point about the AMP A is critical because. I'm not sure if just the simple explanation, simple in quotes, of glutamate and NMDA inhibition is nearly sufficient to explain what's going on. You need that AMP-A. First of all, you need AMP-A to turn on the NMDA, and you need glycine to do the same thing too. Glycine has to also be present, and we know that glycine is an amino acid that keeps the brain very calm. But there's also been many other NMDA inhibitors that have been tried. None of them have had the same effect, hmm. which goes back to your point that I agree that the default mode network is interrupted. Now, what we also know is that the thalamus, which is the sort of relay station that collects information from the body and from the outside, has branches through the amygdala and through the limbic system into the frontal lobes. So in other words, if I'm feeling chilly or cold, obviously the theme of the day, I'm going to feel the cold, the sensation, that cold information is going to go into my thalamus. That's going to be relayed and I'm going to feel slightly uncomfortable through my amygdala. My frontal lobes will tell me, okay, go turn the heat up. So that's the normal mechanism in the way that are, are very simply put. Ketamine interrupts all of that. So ketamine will interrupt all of the sensory input, and it actually is both inhibitory and excitatory. It inhibits the th thalamolimbic cortical network, if you will. It shuts it down. What does that do? it then activates and accentuates the limbic system going into the prefrontal cortex. So the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is inhibited, which is where the thinking and logic and so on goes on. However, what gets accentuated is the limbic system, which is where we believe the, a lot of our unconscious mind is sitting. That's how we dream at night, but it's also what I think the neural mechanism for the ketamine is doing. Wow. 
That in turn, as you can see, will change that default mode network that we're talking about and begin to induce these type of effects. Mm, Jeez. And also as part of that, um, in terms of it being agonistic in, in, in other areas of the brain, in terms of receptors, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's also, I think, an agonist that the mu, the mu opioid receptor, which is actually, I guess, the pleasurable opioid receptor that a lot of the uh, like morphine and other addictive drugs can actually bind to as well. I think. Correct. A mu opioid receptor, it's active there and it's probably part of why it's somewhat of an antidepressant. There's some mixed literature on that though, because if you give naloxone or naltrexone, blocking that, blocking the opioid receptors in the brain, then it can still act as an antidepressant at times. So we don't know for sure about that. Yeah. Um, However, one of the things and one of the reasons is part of why I really want to talk to you about this, too, is that there's a lot of estrogen receptors in the brain. Mm. And it's a powerful estrogen modulator. But that takes days to weeks to months, not seconds or milliseconds like other neurotransmitters. Mm. So I think there's something about estrogen the latest paper that I read, and this is from a paper from 2020 and published in Nature, a very good journal, obviously, has a powerful effect on mTOR. Yeah. mTOR C1. Mm-hmm. mTOR and the mTOR receptor. And I think that's the potentially the mechanism, the mTOR BDNF connection that can potentially lead to really permanent change if you combine it with many other of the modalities we're talking about. I'm really glad you brought up that mTOR signaling in the brain because my listeners will hear that word mTOR and immediately associate it with, uh, you know, muscle growth outside the brain. Sure. Sure. But mTOR is active in the brain, right? So do you want to maybe explain what is mTOR and what's its function? Yeah, well, your listeners will be very connected with its peripheral function, right? And and both for muscle building as well as longevity and so forth. But mTOR in the brain is, is very different. mTOR in the brain is responsible for turning on BDNF and brain-derived neurotropic factor, which then stimulates the BDNF receptor. And that's where I believe the synaptogenesis can begin to occur. And it's through that mTOR C1 receptor and then activating the BDNF that you can cause brain changes and brain activation. That's why the psychotherapy becomes so critical. Because if you can change an experience of a patient as you're improving BDNF levels, then you get wickedly active a neuro uh, regeneration, synaptogenesis, and neuroplasticity. That completely makes sense in terms of how powerful that integration would be because they're undergoing, literally they're undergoing like changes in their brain at the same time as integrating some of these new positive beliefs and thought loops perhaps and new behaviors. And so that would just strengthen the new learnings or sort of removing existing negative loops, which completely makes sense and possibly explains, which, you know, comes on to my next question is in terms of the frequency of 
these sessions? What does that look like typically? Yeah. Again, a little bit variable. And the people that are, again, more dissociated do tend to require more. The people that are less dissociated get plenty of value. So we start with two sessions twice a week to begin with. So that's a pretty intensive two weeks because you've got, let's say, Monday and Thursday. So you've got the preparation over the weekend, the cleaning and living as cleanly as possible. You've got the session on Monday of the induction, and then Tuesday you come back for the integration, and then Wednesday you sort of return to normal life. Thursday you go through the whole thing all over again. And then Friday uh, integration again, right? Exactly. So you're really dedicating an entire week. So we, you know, most of the literature at the beginning that didn't involve ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, just ketamine itself, had a protocol of twice a week for three weeks. We start with twice a week for two weeks, and then we customize it to the patient. Some of the patients say, hey, I'm great with this two weeks. I want to continue in some form of psychotherapy or doing some other kind of, you know, meditative work or their own work or other types of work, other patients feel it's not enough and feel like they can get a lot deeper and a lot farther with additional ones. So for those folks, we offer a third week to begin with. But then I'm very cautious about side effects because we don't know what the long-term impact of this is. We don't know yet what the long-term, there's no studies on long-term neurotoxicity or anything of that sort. So I stop after three weeks. I stop after six sessions, even for the treatment-resistant people, the more difficult patients, and then I bring them back. So I'll bring them back in a couple, well, I'll continue to see them potentially, or one of my therapists will continue to see them, but then we'll bring them back for a re-evaluation as to whether an additional session of ketamine would be valuable or not. Mm-hmm. We'll wait about three weeks, though, before we return to that. Right, right. Because I, I, I just, I want to be, I mean, above all safety when we're going into something new like this. Yeah, yeah, obviously. First principle, first do no harm. That should be. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At the forefront. Well, when it comes to the neurotoxicity aspect, Michael, I mean, based on the, the rat studies, Let's, I don't know if this has been conducted, but like a single dose of, let's say, ketamine within the LD50 range, like surely that has zero neurotoxicity. It's not like all of a sudden, one year later, they get these neurotoxicity symptoms, right? Wow. Like I would see it like within a week after administration, right? Absolutely not. The the neurotoxicity, Lucas, that we see are in the recreational ketamine users that are using it on a pretty frequent basis Mm -hmm. and that are using it, you know, every weekend or or several days in a row at Burning Man or something such as that. Those are the people that will have cognitive problems, memory problems, things like that. So it's I think it has to do with frequency of use. But I don't think it's cumulative. Right. In other words, so far, it looks as if we haven't had anyone with any side effects whatsoever, except for a little bit of nausea. 
at the beginning, which again, we can treat very easily, but even that's pretty mild. Yeah. Well, what I'd love to explore with you, Michael, is I guess maybe give an example of a, of a client or a patient that you've seen it completely transform, obviously with the integration Let's sort of hear about like what have you seen with one of your clients? So I'll be a little bit cautious and I'll sort of, as I describe him, because obviously for patient confidentiality, that's obviously very critical. So I'll, I'll disguise it a little bit. But one of my first patients actually is probably the, one of the best examples that I had. So He's somebody that grew up in, I'll say, an ethnic immigrant family that had a father that was short-tempered, hard-drinking, quite abusive, physically, mentally, emotionally. A lot of kids in the family, a mom that was always overwhelmed, that couldn't keep up, really couldn't lock into the kids' individual needs because she was she was really a manager more than a mother because there were seven kids in the family and a husband that she was trying to manage his alcoholism. So very, very difficult beginnings. But he, um, after several attempts, joined the police academy. And of course, in the police academy, what he ended up doing was wanting, he ended up wanting to be on the most violent group that there was. After several tries, he ended up being on narcotics and asking to be transferred to the city of Detroit, to live in Detroit. And Detroit, in the past, when he, when he first moved here, was a major narcotics center. And as probably the world knows, it was um, extremely violent back in the day. Fortunately, there's been a lot of turnaround in the last 10 years, but he really needed to be in the middle of this. So you can already see how, you know, early violence and how that early chaos was something that he wanted, but that he wanted to control. Except what happened for him was that he got into these very difficult situations with shootouts and with threats on his life and with, you know, literally daily violence and uh, life and death situations that he would see other people involved with, that he would be involved with. He lost a couple people in his group because he became sort of the one of the people that literally held the battering ram when they were going in and breaking down a house. He soon, as we could predict, became quite depressed. He became significantly depressed and began to drink. So following the pattern of his father, of course, he begins to drink, he begins to self-medicate, he began to get extremely depressed, went to different people, tried different psychotherapeutic. The police force has a um, therapist that they send people to and psychiatrist. So he was finding that he was just getting a prescription written and then, uh, you know, a 45-minute session and, you know, see you next time with some exercises. And one of the things, one of the sad things about our frontline workers is just how little they're cared for and they're cared about. But he, he did, to his credit, try a number of different things and nothing worked. So he got to the point where he was suicidally depressed. I mean, he, he was taking out his gun and literally putting it in his mouth at times. And the only thing that would save him would be a call back to his mother. 
And so suicide is always a very ambivalent act. You know, there's people you, you want to, but you don't want to. So he would go through this almost ritual of doing this. And then finally he came to us. I started seeing him and began to unpack the trauma and began to connect the present day behavior with the trauma that he had had before. But he was, he would also shut down because I mean, obviously to survive his own childhood, he had to wall off everything, suppress, repress, push everything away into that locked vault of his so that he was trying not to feel. So at the same time as he's trying not to feel, he can't, he also can't process. So he's somebody that we then put through initially four ketamine experiences, the two times two. He didn't, he found that he couldn't, it didn't make much of an impact for him. Wasn't, that was the first time that I had seen that someone didn't respond well. Came back for two more. But then what he would do would be to self-create this sense of, depression he would go home and even though he'd start to feel better he'd stay locked up in his own room he'd stay by himself it was almost like he needed to punish himself so one day he had a ketamine experience in which he asked himself with the intention why you know we brought this to his attention obviously why do i keep trying to hurt myself and he saw himself after that ketamine session, I think it was number five or number six, he saw himself as a little boy and he saw himself being hurt as a little boy, someone else hurting him. He couldn't tell what the figure was in his imagery, but he could tell that the, that was hurting him and that was threatening his life, but he could certainly tell that it was him as a little boy. Now, what ketamine does is it increases our empathy so we can feel empathic for what we're seeing in the experience, similar to what psilocybin does. But it also can kind of remove you and let you see things as a third-person observer. So you're looking at something with empathy and not with the shame. Because and not with the shame and guilt and pain, you're looking at it more objectively, mm. which is something that the ketamine also did. So once we got to that, he realized, hey, I'm treating myself the way I was treated as a little kid. I'm living the life that I lived as a little kid. From that moment on, and this is this is an unusual story because most people the ketamine assisted psychotherapy actually improves the speed with which people get deeper and go deeper and, and go faster. But for him, this was a cure. I mean, I hate to use that word because, you know, I mean, that's a bad word to use in medicine because you never know what's going to come back. But we got a letter a month later from him saying, my God, I'm living an entirely different life. I've got a girlfriend. I've got friends. I've moved out of the ghetto apartment I was living in. I'm feeling like living again. I'm feeling like, hey, I'm even reconsidering a change in my career. Very talented and intelligent guy. 
but really was reworking and remaking his life. So um, this is a, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a long story, but this is, a, this is kind of how it, unf- well, it's very close to how it unfolded. Wow. That's honestly incredible. Just, yeah, even just hearing about his, his journey and his experience and then doing a complete 180 turnaround through the use of that therapy, just hopefully anyone listening into this podcast to always have hope because there are people like yourself who understand, you know, what it takes and then merging these modalities, which is honestly, you're doing an amazing thing. It's, it's so powerful and it's, it's, it, it excites me as well because we're both on a mission to heal. That's what we're here to do. So it's just an incredible, incredible thing you're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, the same back. I mean, I, I thank you very much for that because I know there's nothing you say that isn't sincere knowing you a little bit, but it's, it's really a something that makes me that I'm so passionate about and so excited about because it is transformative and there's not really many things in that, that we do that we can say that about, uh, you know, we hope we can contribute little bits and, and little pieces to the well-being of people's lives. But to see the potential for this is, uh, is very, very gratifying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have gone deep on uh, the ketamine assisted psychotherapy. So Michael, did you want to let my listeners know maybe where they can either find you on Instagram or your clinic if they want to learn more. Sure. My clinic is uh, the militiccenter.com, M-I-L-E-T-I-C, one word. And all of the contact information is on there. Instagram, I've been a little bit remiss in staying abreast of that because I've been honestly very busy doing this and putting this together in the last few months. But I can be found just at Michael Militic on Instagram. Awesome. Awesome. I'll make sure to leave those uh, linked in the show notes. But uh, I'm sure we'll be back again because I feel like there's going to be a round three. We'll (laughs) we'll, we'll pick another topic and um, dive deep, I think. You discussing the uh, the psilocybin, the LSD, and the MDMA that could also be um, an interesting discussion because I'm sure there's that's a whole different you know rabbit hole there. So that 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 will be something we'll have to organize. Absolutely, looking forward to it very very much. Awesome, thanks, Michael. We'll uh, we'll chat soon. Thank you, Lucas. Take care. Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.